We say that the most dangerous criminal now is the entirely lawless modern philosopher. Compared to him, burglars and bigamists are essentially moral men. My heart goes out to them. They accept the essential ideal of man. They merely seek it wrongly. Thieves respect property. They merely wish the property to become their property, that they may more perfectly respect it. But philosophers dislike property as property. They wish to destroy the very idea of personal possession. Bigamists respect marriage, or they would not go through the highly ceremonial and even ritualistic formality of bigamy. But philosophers despise marriage as marriage. Murderers respect human life. They merely wish to attain a greater fullness of human life in themselves by the sacrifice of what seems to them to be lesser lives. But philosophers hate life itself, their own as much as other people's. Welcome to the Big Readcast, a podcast where two friends usually read big books and talk about them, except for this time. This time we've chosen two books as small as possible to get through as quickly as possible as a way to recover from our last big read, Black Lamb and Grey Falcon, the biggest read that I've read or will ever read again. Um, I'm Joel. I'm Bill. And thanks for joining us. So Bill, um, I actually wanted to start out, and after that sort of canned introduction i actually that's why i wanted to talk about for a second before we get to the books the experience of podcasting because you and i started this a little over a year ago now or a year ago is it a year ago i I can't i I don't even even know it's about a year ago we did it end of january 2018 so basically like i was i do this like little newsletter that just is a way for me to like get opinions out of my head so i stop thinking about them and i was writing about this article from francis spufford who talking about uh, the worst journey in the world. And I was like, Hey, could someone read this book with me? Cause I'm not sure I'll read it without, you know, maybe like a buddy to do it with. And you were like, yeah, let's definitely do that. And then let's maybe coordinate on a project afterward. Cause like you're a writer, I'm a writer. And I suggested, Hey, a podcast. Cause I don't have a lot of time. And so I was just curious, like the experience of podcasting is such a weird one because it's a medium based on like authenticity and intimacy. And yet you and I have talked about like before and after the podcast, if we talk like there's just a slightly different energy. And so I don't know, I was just curious, like what the experience of podcasting has been like for you (laughs) since it's become like a thing we do regularly. Well, I mean, you're right. It's got a very different energy, even though I think we're not usually trying to be too structured or artificial, even with this one. Like we have like an outline usually, but we're generally pretty willing to chase tangents. I, th- I think one of it is we can't really have shorthand with each other, uh, which is something yeah. like in your conversation, I might just say, hey, remember the bit where this happened? You'd be like, yeah. And I'd be like, that was cool, right? You'd be like, yeah. And it's like, it's like that other book, right? And you'd be like, yeah. And that would be the end of the bit. Whereas we can't do that here. We have to really explicate the the thought because hypothetically, other people are going to listen to this. And if it's just Bill and Joel speaking in pronouns and shorthand for two hours, no one will listen to that. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, even fewer people. <laughs> and and that's that's... Of course, just means you have to speak differently and think differently because you have to really explicate everything. But it's good for my own thinking, too. Like, I come out with a much better understanding of these books than I would have if I had just read them. And I think even if I had just called you up and chatted about them, I think, because we have this more sort of, I guess, almost artificial context 
that we have to talk about them in. Um, and so I think I definitely get a better, get more out of the books this way. Um, yeah, actually. So no, I, I agree. Like you and I were just joking on the phone before we started this podcast, actually, that um, the amount of obligations I feel I have to sign up for just to do the things that I like. Um, <laughs> it's, it's like, it was, it's like the classic example is, you know, um, I first started running, which I'm, I'm a jogger. I'm like the guy who's out there, you know, panting as the grandma's pass, you know, it's a very embarrassing experience to go jogging in Colorado because everyone's a triathlete and, and you're just a guy hoping not to die young. <laughs> um, <laughs> but I first, I first got the confidence to do it. And also the discipline when I like, I signed up for a half marathon and I, like, I had had no running experience and this was years ago and I'm still not like a runner or in great shape, but it was just the confidence of discipline was required through obligation. And there's a weird way in which like, um, I think I, I, as, as maybe as like Philistine and middle class as this makes me for like a variety of reasons. Um, I, you know, the idea of a big book, I still have all these sort of weird hangups with on one hand, it feels very like inherently snobby and, you know, artificial to talk about big books as a different thing than small books. Right. Because they're just literally different word counts. <laughs> um, and like Chekhov is the greatest example of a complete and and, and complex artifact, you know, which is small, <laughs> but I, but I literally just didn't know that I had the, I don't know. I hate to say discipline because reading is supposed to be for me like a pleasurable thing, but I don't know that I would have gotten through worst journey in the world or picked it up because it's, it is a daunting time commitment, you know? Um, and yeah, so I, yeah, the podcast has been awesome on, on, on the fact of reading the books, not only because, of our conversation, which I agree. I feel like I come, I come to the books and I leave them with a lot more intentionality. But, um, honestly, like I also just probably wouldn't have read almost all of the books that you and I have read, except for these small reads, um, which we'll get to in a little bit, but yeah. So yeah, I don't know. I think it's been really fun. Um, I wanted to ask you before we move on to the books, just real quick, cause we both talked about it. Which books did you, um, finish closest to the deadline of recording the podcast? Yeah. So, um, I finished the worst journey in the world that morning. I finished Black <laughs> I, Lamb and Gray Falcon 45 minutes before we recorded the podcast. Which is, by the way, like, I i can't believe it was that soon for you. Because that book is such a, a mind F. It's such a complete overhaul of so many different, maybe, like, um, assumptions about how history works or whatever. Like, But it, it, it's nothing else. It has so much to say about so many different areas. The fact that you could talk about it cogently after, because the ending finishes on like a really high note, right? Like she's talking about World War II and sort of the the feeling of recovering your bravery. She says, like that's a really intense ending. I don't know. I was very impressed that you talked about it so cogently. Well, the the, the reason it took me so dang long to read it is because I would go through and, like I said, put put the book down in front of me and stare at the ceiling for 30 minutes after after finishing a chapter. So it's not <laughs> that right. I didn't get like befuddled by the book. It's just that I did go ahead and do that while reading the book instead of right yeah. at the end. Um, I finished the one that I finished closest to the deadline. Like like you said, like probably half an hour before you and I talked was The Unconsoled um, by Ishiguro. And that book was also not a great book to finish 30 minutes before you talk with someone about it because it's such a dream logic book. And it's... It was weird because on one hand, I thought it was not a good book for very like very important reasons for my own writerly 
you know, journey or whatever. But on the other hand, I, I kind of loved a lot of what it did. And like you and I talked about that in the podcast, but to try and articulate why or why, why you did or didn't enjoy a certain dream logic sequence is so much more difficult than like expositing on, you know, should we whip people or put them in prison, right? That's a very like concrete <laughs> analysis you can do out loud. Whereas like, Hey, does this dream book do good things narratively or bad things narratively? Um, and so, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, that was definitely the hardest for me to talk about for a lot, lots of reasons. But, um, but yeah, anything else you want to talk about podcasting? I just thought it was, it's, just, it's a weird thing that you and I, you know, we're doing now. I, I just, uh, it's a different experience. I think there's something about, so I talked about how I, I understand these books a little better and sometimes understand my own thinking on them better because we do it. But there's a sense which, like, if I said, hey, Joel, let's read a book and then I'm going to call you on the phone and we're going to talk about it for two hours, you would say, Bill, that's... <laughs> That's very silly. I'm not going to do that. Whereas right. instead, if I said, hey, Joel, let's read this long book and then talk about it for two hours and record it, for some reason, that's different. And maybe that's just because humans are silly. But there's a sense of like, I don't know, like putting something out into the world, which seems to be somewhat, I don't know, a good thing to do, even as it's a, you know, fairly sort of self-centered, absurd project like this. <laughs> this could almost be a nice transition to Chesterton because there is something that's fun about ceremony, right? There's something fun about ritual. There's something that enlivens in a way that we usually associate with like, so sorry, there's a way in which structure enlivens in a way that we usually would say it deadens, right? So like ritual and so forth, ritualistic is supposed to be like a negative term for, you know, it's become meaningless. It's just the motions. And yet Chesterton, who famously was high church Anglican, converted to Catholicism, kind of the voice of the, you know, uh, early 20th century, certain types of conservatism, he was so big into the idea of ritual, which leads us to our small reads, which this time are two books by G.K. Chesterton, The Man Who Was Thursday and uh, The Napoleon of Notting Hill, two of his better considered works as far as, you know, if there's a canon of Chesterton, they're at the top probably of his novels. So yeah, so I so there's a weird way in which actually I, I do feel like the structure of the podcast there's something fun about plugging in a microphone, you know, calling you and trying to do something different while at the same time just connecting as friends. You know, there's a way in which we formalized the connection and then exploited it, you know, <laughs> is the downside. But um, but yeah, so let's talk about these books, man, if you're up for that. Um, we read uh, The Man Who Was Thursday and Napoleon of Notting Hill. And I thought we could start with The Man Who Was Thursday slash um, your background with Chesterton where you're coming from and what you know about him or what you came to the table with in regards to who he is and what his books are like and so forth. Right. So Chesterton is one of those writers that I've known I need to get around to reading because everyone I like loves Chesterton, but hadn't actually right. done until this month. Um, so for a little context, Chesterton lived uh, 1874 to 1936. Uh, he was British. Um, he wrote about everything. He was a really prolific essayist, wrote a boatload of novels, including a bunch of sort of detective stories, the Father Brown mysteries about a, he's a priest, right? Uh, yep, yeah, Father yep. Brown. He's a priest and a detective, or I'm not sure if he's officially a detective, but he functions as a detective, essentially. Um, he wrote a boatload of essays about just everything in politics, in religion. He wrote a lot of sort of, I guess you could call it apologetics. Um, towards the end of his life, he was doing radio addre addresses, sort of like yep. uh, C.S. Lewis would do not much later. Um, I know there's a lot, uh, people can draw a real through line between sort of Chesterton's sort of public talking about Christianity and then Lewis's doing so 
uh, more well, like right and, after Chesterton died. Um, and supposedly the Everlasting Man, um, Chesterton's book on Christ, essentially, was one of the texts that helped convert um, atheist Lewis to Christianity Lewis. Yeah, and uh, Chesterton also, he's very important to a whole generation of sort of fantasy and sort of imaginative fiction writers. He's famously very important to Neil Gaiman. Um, Neil Gaiman dedicates... So Neverwhere, Gaiman's book Neverwhere, opens with a quote from the Napoleon of Notting Hill. And I think we'll talk about it more later, but I think you can argue that Neverwhere is sort of a really aggressive version of what if we did the Napoleon of Notting Hill except the project, it wasn't silly, but was actually right. You know, like there's there's an (laughs) argument for that about Neverwhere. Uh, Good Omens, the book that Neil Gaiman wrote with Terry Pratchett is dedicated to G.K. Chesterton. Uh, There's a character in Sandman, Neil Gaiman's comic uh, graphic novel, like Magnum Opus, who is uh, very clearly modeled on Chesterton, uh, like physically and also how he acts. Um, And I think he even goes by Gilbert when he's out in the world. He's actually like a dream. It's a weird book series. But um, (laughs) uh, yeah, I think he is named Gilbert. It's been a while. Uh, It's really good, by the way. Sandman is really good if you haven't read it. But uh, yeah, there's a character in there who's basically G.K. Chesterton. Um, And so I, I, I knew that like a lot of these writers I cared about really respected Chesterton, particularly these two books. And he, he's one of those writers that everyone, I think, is always sort of like, oh, he's been kind of forgotten, and yet he always shows up. You know what I mean? Like, I yes. I, I see references to Chesterton just all the dang time, yep. but I, I think there is a sense that he's not as present in the popular consciousness, but it's like he's in the subconscious of everybody who is writing for the popular consciousness, if that makes sense. Um, so he's a very important writer in a lot of ways, but I had not gotten around to reading him until now, and now I have read these two books, so I have read now whatever that is, 300 pages of Chesterton, which is 0.0001% of the guy's, like, body of work. No, there, it, it, do, it does seem like, unless you're a very sort of, like, unless you consider yourself a very literary person or perhaps a religious person, you probably haven't gotten around to Chesterton, it seems like. Maybe you've heard of him, like you've said, but he, he seems like the guy behind the guy. Maybe partly, to be honest, because Lewis came along and eclipsed him a little bit, right? So... Um, there's for me uh, reading Chesterton has been such a fun thing, partly because I grew up reading Lewis, and um, there are so many ways in which the best of Lewis is an improvement or innovation or even repetition of Chesterton, especially in their apologetics um, and cultural you know discussions. But um, but actually, what was crazy for me, so I I, I hadn't I actually I've read these books before. Uh, I read The Man Who Was Thursday back in college. I think it was college. If not, it was like late high school. But um, and it totally blew my mind. And so I'm partly excited to talk to you th- with you about the man. It was Thursday because you're coming from it fresh. Um, whereas I, this, I think this is my third time reading it. Maybe and it's a book that I dearly love. Um, my edition is the uh, 20th Century Penguin Classics edition with an intro by Kingsley Amos. And um, Amos captures it for me as far as he says like there's you know it's the most it's one of the most thrilling books you've ever read. And what does he say? He says it's um, it's not quite a political bad dream, nor a metaphysical thriller, nor a cosmic joke in the form of a spy novel, but it has something of all three. It remains the most thrilling book I've ever read. And that's actually about my take on it as well. And so, um, yeah, I don't, yeah, Chesterton is, is big. I, I do want it before we get too far because I like him so much. Um, I, just because I feel like she's in my head all the time now. Um, I got to read this quote from Rebecca West that someone put out on Twitter and it's her writing when she was like 20 in 1913. 
Um, but she, <laughs> she says, in these days, I am constantly meeting a certain type of self-satisfied young person who imagines that he is saved as a social and spiritual man because he drinks beer in a priggish manner and experiences feelings of sentimental distension on such occasions as sunset, <laughs> and that he has solved the problem of poverty because he dislikes Mr. and Mrs. Sidney Webb. Such persons state that it is Mr. G.K. Chesterton who has made them what they are. I believe them. <laughs> and I think that's just the most, like, she goes on, but it's such a brutal takedown of a certain, uh, of a certain way in which Chesterton can go bad, you know, I, um, which we don't have to get into, but I think, you know, his thought has been hugely important for a lot of the writers we just mentioned, Neil Gaiman, C.S. Lewis, and, and more. Uh, Madeline Lingle would be in there as well, I think. But he also, I think, is disregarded sometimes because, truthfully, he was a very polemical voice um, who hasn't softened with age, you know? like. And so, yeah, let's just get to the book. Sorry to, to go off on various subjects. But um, how was, how was your experience reading this book whose subtitle is A Nightmare? So I realized I'd read a lot of people talking about how The Man Who Was Thursday is a really cool book. And I realized I actually had no idea what it was about at all, <laughs> which is, <laughs> is kind of like there's a lot of books I haven't read, but I sort of know roughly what they're about or maybe even right. the plot. But I realized I actually didn't know a darn thing about this book. Uh, so I went into it pretty blind and I decided not to try to look up any kind of even just I didn't even read the back of the book which I've got some both of these books I got from some they're both in the public domain now so I, I didn't realize yeah. it, but I bought some sort of pretty crummy cheap. Well it's hard uh, to find it's 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 actually yeah it's really hard to find good printings of them actually. Okay well that makes me feel a little better. Um, like my Napoleon of Notting Hill doesn't have uh, page numbers. <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> uh, and is credited to Gilbert K. Chesterton, which is his name, but is not how it's anyone it, yeah. has ever called it. Uh, <laughs> the really weird picture on the cover is actually originally from the book, though, I discovered. So that's that's good. Um, and the text appeared to be correct, so that was fine. Uh, <laughs> but anyway, I, I kind of deliberately went into The Man Who Was Thursday without any idea what it was about. And uh, I guess I'll talk about, I guess I'll summarize the book very quickly, because uh, if you're listening, that's probably also where you are. Um so The Man Who Was Thursday is about a man named Gabriel Syme, who is a poet who has become a police officer, but he's joined a sort of circle of detectives who aren't like out on the streets dealing with, you know, robbers. They're hunting down like philosophically dangerous people, right? Anarchists and such. Uh, and and the, the whole book is sort of a struggle between Syme and his detective friends against the anarchists. And anarchists are used in a literal sort of bomb-throwing you know, dynamiting buildings, assassinating political figures, down with not only, you know, certain kinds of government, but all of society kind of sense, right? Right. So, Syme goes to a place, gets into an argument with a poet. The poet turns out to be one of these anarchists. So, Syme manages to get himself invited to go to this secret anarchists meeting, where they're electing sort of who's going to be their representative to the Central European Anarchists Council. And... Um, the Anarchist Council, there's seven of them, and they all are named after one day of the week. You have a Monday, a Tuesday, a Wednesday, a Thursday, a Friday, a Saturday, and a Sunday, who are all, and Sunday's the president. Um, but this chapter is going to elect their Thursday, who is their representative. And in a feat of what I can only describe as a D&D character with a charisma of 22 and a real desire to wreck the DM's plans, um, Gabriel <laughs> Syme manages to talk this group into electing him to be their Thursday. Um which is a wonderful little scene. So he goes and he in infiltrates this anarchist's council as one of them and sets off to try to prevent them from, uh, you know, killing... I don't remember who it is. Killing the... 
is it Tsar who's going to be in France, I think. But anyway, yeah. some, some very important political figures. But in so doing, he slowly begins to realize that every other member of the anarchist council is actually also an undercover detective. <laughs> yeah. Um, one of the time they keep meeting people, he'll have this really weird, surreal encounter with one of them where, like, he starts to wonder if they're not, like, he doesn't actually say it explicitly, but, like, there's one character who's a really old man, and he starts following Gabriel Syme. And Syme runs from one place to another, and then the old man is there, even though he can't hardly seem to walk. And it seems like the old man is, like, teleporting. Until it turns out what actually is is the old man is actually, like, a 30-year-old actor wearing old age makeup who's just sprinting around corners really fast. Um, <laughs> and uh, so they find out basically every single member of these this council is also a detective while having these right. sort of increasingly surreal adventures that are all based on misunderstandings and one member of the group working against them because they both think that they're, uh, you know, anarchists. Until eventually they all end up at the house of the president, who is this enormous man who is very consistently described as frightening. And, 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 you know, one of the guys thinks that even if they were all six to try to fight against him, they couldn't. He leads them on this merry chase through London on the back of an elephant. The details don't really matter. They're just, there's a lot. Uh, and then they end up at Sunday's house, who makes them all dress up as one of the days of creation, uh, you know, the seven days of creation in Genesis. They all realize that he's kind of... It's not really clear why he set this all, set them all up to do this. The original, the poet he runs into in the first place shows up there as well. They have an argument about philosophy and religion, and then that's the end of the book. It is a uniquely bananas novel. <laughs> well, and so it's it's so bizarre because, like you talked about, there are these these constant sort of moments where you think something supernatural or magical is taking place, and then it's revealed that actually no, um, it was just a misunderstanding. It was a misreading of the facts, and yet at the ground floor of the novel, kind of as you get through all of the illusions, you like you go through each of the different detectives who are masked as or who are masquerading as anarchists, you know, you kind of unmask each of them, right? And then you get to Sunday, and actually the ground floor is this clearly supernatural being. Yeah. <laughs> um, which we can get to in a minute, because I think what's what's fun about Chesterton and what's difficult is that um he's always pinning big ideas onto his plot lines or his dialogue or whatever, right? He's an essayist at heart, I think, and he can't help but always be philosophizing. Sometimes, too, what's hard is that the philosophy is just a game, so he'll have one character sort of put forward an idea that is, like, almost coherent, and then he'll have someone else respond to it, and so he lets them have this really energetic discussion that's not necessarily totally lucid right like and maybe part of that's just because it's written a hundred years ago and we're having different d dialogues now but um there's a way in which J chesterton's hard because he has big ideas and also because to me at least he seems impatient as a novelist he likes to jump from here to there to get to the next scene of action um which is true in general but it's super true in this novel which you know again the subtitle is a nightmare, so I think it has a certain um, dreamlike quality of jumping to the next thing and being chased by mobs that turn out to be friends once they get near you and so forth. But he also, as a writer, seems really good, actually, at sort of skipping to the next beat of, beat of action, sometimes within a paragraph. Um, and so before we get to the big ideas, I was just curious how this read to you as, like, just a fun adventure novel. Because for me, this is still one of... It, I, I'm with Kingsley Amos. It is still one of, like the most sort of like get to the next page books that I've read without being just a straight up boring pot boiler. You know what I mean? Well, I, so I always have a soft spot in my heart for these sort of swashbuckling novels where your protagonist 
you know, it's just kind of a guy whose only real distinguishing feature from everyone else around him is that he has just a tremendous amount of chutzpah. Uh, and this <laughs> yeah, book is one yeah. of those. Uh, like I said, yeah. he talks himself onto the anarchist's council just by getting up and giving a heck of a speech uh, and just confusing the heck out of the guy who brought him in there. So it's it's really fun on a page-by-page -page basis. And Gabriel Syme is just, he's a fun protagonist. Not necessarily because right. he's that carefully sketched. Again, he's just kind of a guy who's sort of an idealist and occasionally have moments of common sense, and occasionally has moments of philosophy. Like, he's not a... Not, I'm not sure he's a great character, but he's a great driving narrative force, because he will just get up to yes. some nonsense every time, and it's wonderful. Uh, he has to pick a duel with one of the other anarchist council members, and he just goes into this just comedic tirade about how the Marquis has insulted my, you know, aunt's nephew. I can't remember, but it's, it's exactly the, you know aunt's nephew's cousins this or that thing and you know, i wanted to pull his nose for it and <laughs> it's just fun to read and then it explodes in the last like six pages the other thing is this book is it's 140 pages no one thing takes more than 10 pages like this no, book rockets right along like you're saying so the whole explosion of the book from a spy thriller into maybe sunday is god is like maybe nine pages <laughs> like <laughs> right well and yeah that's yeah Sunday is something, right? But that, that's actually, that's that's its own huge mystery in some ways still, I think. But what's fascinating about this book to me is that um, it was the first book I read, to be honest, that talked about um, anarchists as something more than just sort of like a label, you know? And so yeah. I didn't realize, of course, that the anarchy movement and all of its various little splinter movements, I know it's sort of like talking about terrorism as a coherent whole. It doesn't really make sense when you get on the ground and talk about what group is doing what. But um, in 1907, um, there was a book written by Joseph Conrad, the secret agent, also about an anarchist bomb bombing and secret agents, you know, double, you know, double, double agents and so forth. But um, I mean, the anarchy movement was like, again, to the extent that it's coherent, was really successful as far as terrorizing people because it actually like it, it successfully assassinated people. <laughs> um, right. Like the, you know, I think it assassinated at least one of the presidents McKinley, I think. Um, and so what's really interesting about this book is that um, it's sort of, if you, it's sort of like if you wrote uh, a comic tragic adventure novel of someone in Afghanistan targeting like um al-qaeda <laughs> do you know what i mean like that's almost like i feel like it's like it, like it's it's you infiltrated al-qaeda or maybe like the white you know nationalists before like right after oklahoma bombing happened you wrote a novel about infiltrating white nationalists only instead of just being this super serious like tom clancy exercise it's this sort of romping good time which i think is is part of why i love chesterton in general is because he's he he's dealing with such serious issues in every aspect of his writing whether it's polemically apologetically or narratively and yet the joy he has in just addressing you know the problems of the world it it's sort of amazing to me to be honest that someone this smart is also this fun that, that makes a lot of sense so there's that gaiman quote i think i showed you where he talks about the writers who made him want to be a writer and he the lord of the rings was the i think the book he talks about that really made him want to be a writer, but what it made him want to do was have written The Lord of the Rings, but of course, he didn't ever want to write like Tolkien, because he says trying to write like Tolkien would be like trying to climb a tree like a chipmunk, or like trying to what does he say, try to you try to blossom like a cherry tree, you know like Tolkien's sentences were natural rock formations he stumbled upon that had been there for a thousand years, whereas when he read Chesterton, he realized this was somebody who loved language and he wanted to write like that he says, uh 
yeah, at the end of any particularly good sentence or any perfectly put paradox, you could hear the author somewhere behind the scenes giggling with delight. And that's exactly the way it, like, Chesterton is having a really good time with both of these books, uh, but I think particularly this one, um, the yeah. entire time with you. Like, he's not, this isn't a, a picture show that he's set up to sort of, like, wow you with. He's sitting in the seats next to you, you know, pointing stuff out and saying, isn't that hilarious? <laughs> well, and there's, yeah, and I mean, he was, a, in his life, Chesterton was called the Prince of Paradox because most of his jokes are just usually an inversion of words or or he presents like these two things, which everyone says this is impossible, but actually this is, you know, perfectly fit. Um, but an example of the way he just uses inversion or sort of like seemingly opposites to make a coherence would be... Um, is a quote that he talks about Gabriel Syme is becoming fearful of Sunday, this great Superman personality. And he says, you know, like any man, Syme was coward enough to fear great force, but he was not quite coward enough to admire it, which is that's where the Prince of Paradox thing is so it's such, it's such a compliment, right? Because he's exactly right. The, the really, the really, the real climax of fearing something is to just, bow to it right that to just succumb to it be without even trying to understand it or resist it or whatever or even run from it right that you just sort of hope it absorbs you that way the fear is gone because you're now just a part of the thing and that's obvious on one hand but that he gets there so epigrammatically every single paragraph you know what i mean like this is just he just he won't stop with these sort of little axioms or whatever and i i still have not read a, a writer who has that many sort of turns of phrase per paragraph, and yet they don't really get tiresome. Like maybe if you read Chesterton for a month straight, they would. But as far as in one book, they don't really get tired, for me at least. I don't know if that was true for you or not. No, I definitely think uh, one of the joys of this book is he's really like aphorism. He writes a lot of aphorisms, and like he's he's one of those writers people say are like endlessly quotable. Like this is the sort of guy that you know, your tiresome friend that Rebecca West is describing will just be able to throw quotes at you like Churchill or right. Franklin or somebody like that. Yep. Um, and, you know, I, I think that is that can be sort of frustrating at times, but at least in this book, it's often really enjoyable. Um, and he'll sometimes use them to say, I think, some really you know, pretty smart insights that he'll just kind of chuck into the middle of this paragraph. And it works oh, in the yeah. context of the, it works in the context of the story, but it's also the sort of thing you could take out and just sort of frame on your wall, which, uh, I was just see if I had a particularly good one uh, to mind. Yeah, so this is, and this is funny because this is not in the Napoleon of Notting Hill, even as it could be, but like it expressed that splendid smallness, which is the soul of local patriotism, talking about the <laughs> the little town that they start off in. Right. Um, that is both about the story. It's about, this is about this little village that we're in, but it's also like, it's a claim about the world. And and he's he, he does that throughout this book. And I think, I mean, I think this is this is true of, you know, satire in general that satire requires a really in some ways polemical viewpoint you know that to make fun of something you have to sort of accuse it of something if that makes sense um and so i think that when he goes for example one of the funniest passages for me was he was talking about um how gabriel syme you know it has a chance to become thursdays that the last thursday died (laughs) he and he died through his faith in a hygienic mixture of chalk and water as a substitute for milk, which beverage he regarded as barbaric and as involving cruelty to the cow. So that's that's a polemic against vegans. You know what I mean? Like that's not a neutral thing. But what makes it funny, of course, is the language, if that makes sense. And so even though it takes it sort of it takes the point of view to get, you know, to the humor, 
the humor still comes in language, for me at least, um, which I think is really, I don't know, again, he's operating at a lot of levels. Um, and, all, and what's even more funny is like a little like um, one of my favorite books, you know, Moby Dick, to be honest. Moby Dick is always pontificating, but what makes it interesting is like it's it'll choose a different angle every time it goes after something. And so this book is so weird because he seems to be attacking materiality and scientism and other things, maybe, but also he keeps undercutting every every breakthrough he makes, if only through the action of the book, which is like, hey, this detective, sorry, this anarchist who thought was evil, and he represents this evil thing, science, you know, whatever, materialism. Actually, surprise, um, that's also a fellow detective, and he's still a materialist. You know what I mean? Um, which, I, which I think would be a good transition to us talking about. So what about this book as like a big idea book? Because he's definitely doing something big, but do you have any idea what he's doing? <laughs> This book, I, I find this kind of book sometimes kind of frustrating, right? Because Chesterton, he's writing a fun adventure story, and then also throughout the book, but then particularly at the end, is trying to make it clear that he's trying to make several points. But because he's being kind of clever about them, and he's trying to do the good writer thing, which is resist really easy allegory, which is, is yes. good, right? Because nobody cares about those books. They're bad books. You know, The Pilgrim's Progress is not a good book. Um, like, the difference is that... At the end of it, I get really hesitant about staking out a strong position on what any of it means because I'm always worried it's going to be dope, hopelessly wrong because I missed some other sentence somewhere in here and somewhere G.K. Chesterton is just going to be laughing at me. Um, but I, I think uh, there's something really important about the fact that there aren't any bad guys in this book. I think if I was going to sort of hinge on one thing, it would be that fact, right? That every every member of the Anarchist Council is a detective the only actual anarchists we meet are the super ineffectual goofballs at the beginning of the council. Right. And even who, them, we don't know who much becomes about. like who at the end of the books, the book, you know, the book has this great supernatural masquerade with Sunday and the, uh, detectives dressed as the seven days of creation. And then, you know, the anarchist is brought in that he met in the beginning Syme, Right. And he's brought in as maybe like a representation of the devil or something. And yet after all of the supernatural stuff finishes, Syme finds himself walking casually and, you know, uh, pleasantly with the anarchist who was maybe the only real problem. They're buddies, right? That the allegory dissipates into reality within the actual text, right? That whatever allegory exists actually doesn't have the final word. Just, just to your point, you know, that the allegory is there and yet it's not authoritative completely because it totally fades out into this more natural, normal setting that doesn't resolve the allegory, right? It just leaves it hanging. Um, which brings me to my, I guess, so what I wanted to, I, what I want us to still maybe give a go at is, okay, so we have this anarchist council, six of whom are detectives, one of whom is the president, Sunday. He's also the man that recruited all six detectives in a dark room where they couldn't see him to become detectives. And they describe him in both situations as being this massive force who they worry about, you know, being an impossible kind of personality to stop. And so the book ends with several ideas, I think, several ideas of who Sunday might be or what he might be. And I thought, I think we should just put those on the board and see, like, are any of these plausible or is it just resist allegory too much? Because it says, one... He might be just like the universe or creation, that Sunday is sort of this 
personification of nature or the world in a medieval sense. Or he himself says, I am the peace of God at the very end. And then it, it's over. And then right before it's over, a little voice comes out talking about like um, bearing the cup that I bore. And I don't know if it's Sunday's voice or not, because that would be words from Christ, basically, right? And so, yeah, so I was just curious, like, do you think it's possible to put forward a best case scenario? Or like, like, what's the best answer for who Sunday is? Is there one? Yeah, see, this is the sort of thing I hate. Uh, but no, see, I, I but think... no, but but I think, but I feel like it's no, important. I'm gonna do it. Yeah. I'm not... <laughs> okay. Okay. <laughs> I just this is the this is the thing that's kind of scary about it, um, because Sunday is is deliberately intended to be such a sort of mercurial figure, because any re- reasonable read of Sunday isn't that at any point he's pretending to be something other than what he is, right? Like that's right. The, I think you got to read him. He is the man in the shadows, detecting, like raising the bringing in the detectives. He is the big terrifying man who is coordinating the anarchists. And he's also this sort of jolly-ish, but still kind of scary figure at the end who, um, you know, sort of tells them all what to do. He's the man who bounces up and he's he's physically gifted, like he's jumping all around the place riding the elephant. Um, any theory is going to have to do all of these things. I lo- Syme talks a lot about how when he first saw Sunday, he thought he was seeing him from behind, right? Like yep. there's a real duality that Syme dwells on here that you see the back of something and it looks scary, and you think that the good side behind it is is just like a sort of a a mask, but then you see it from the other side, and you think that the good side is actually the 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 real thing, and the the bad side is just like a vestigial, you know. Uh, and, and there's something about I, I think it makes more sense to think of Sunday as being kind of the world or something, but it's not unconnected from a sort of again Christian God because you're right, it's not entirely clear that he's the one who says can you take this cup from me or whatever it is, but it's a voice that happens while Sunday like expands into some sort of mind shattering uh, vision. <laughs> there's, there's sort of a weird read I want to do on this though, which is the one I've had the most thought of ready. Uh, so Sunday is a really large round man, right? Yes. GK Chesterton was a really large <laughs> round man. He's the author. Um, um, and that's the thing. Like, in, in some sense, maybe what I'm, I, I got kind of interested in is Sunday at the end is sort of trying to, part of the reason Sunday, boy, this is a hard book to talk about. I'm going to edit <laughs> some of this dithering out. No, but this is so the, good. <laughs> but the point about, um, so the poet shows up and he char- he accuses uh, the detectives of never having suffered, basically, right? He says, right. You're, you're too safe. I could forgive you being cruel, except that you're safe, which echoes something that Gabriel Syme said to a cop earlier on, but we'll get back to that later, maybe. Um and Syme stands up and says, no, what we have, like, we did all this running around Europe trying to save the world. It turned out it was confused, but we did suffer. We thought we were turned on by friends, like, we got into fistfights, we got shot at, we really suffered here. And there's something sort of profound about that, and, like, Sunday seems to kind of want us to focus on that. Well, in some sense, there might be a broader argument about, like, theodicy, about why people suffer in the real world. But there's also an argument that, like, as an author, you have to make your characters go through bad things in order to be able to make your argument right uh or make your point make your story happen and so there's a sense in which i think this book works on several levels because to one extent it's the characters railing at the author for making them get shot at uh even as they understand that that's what allowed them to have an adventure so i don't know that is i maybe ducked the question but i think that's at least a important read of honestly that is like the the best read i could have hoped for i think i think it's far more interesting and true to what's happening in the story than what I kept thinking, which is I I do think that Sunday 
is some sort of manifestation of reality. And I think what he really is, and this is why he doesn't change necessarily, but um, because they continually talk about him as having a gravity as far as like he has his own center that things yeah. organize around him. And um, so I think clearly, and, and at one point Gabriel Syme says, you know, all six detectives are talking and they have all these different reads on Sunday that are clearly inflected by their own personality. And Syme says, yes, these are all different aspect you know different you know viewpoints of who sunday might be he sounds very different when you each describe him except that each of you compares him to some part of the universe you compare him to some part of nature or you know the sky or whatever and so for me what i kept thinking of and this is this is my own bias because i just finished a book by um Carlo Rovelli, who's like a physicist in italy and he sort of writes these very like public friendly um, books on the nature of often like quantum gravity or quantum time and so forth, things that I don't understand. And so this podcast usually talks about stuff that I don't understand. We're going to go even further than usual <laughs> into things that I don't understand. But he's so he's so lucid, um, Ravelli, about you know quantum time and quantum gravity that he gives you the confidence to maybe regurgitate some of what he says. And what I kept thinking about was that Sunday – is sort of the experience of trying to know the world, which is, for me, what this book of physics was. He talks about, hey, everyone knows what time is, right? We all think we know what time is. It's this coherent, moving forward. You know, you grow older. There's the past and the future. And he says, well, actually, of course, starting with at least Einstein, and actually before Einstein, with all of the um, uh, second law of thermodynamics stuff, the heat engine, the heat death, we realize that actually time is not nearly as coherent as we think it is when we start looking at the the things that make up time or make up the world, that the composite features of the world feel a lot more erratic when you're not looking at them at an everyday scale. And so why that scale part matters to me is because like, from a certain distance, um, the world does have a really clear coherence, and then as soon as you zoom in, it doesn't. The basic example being like what your teacher did in high school, right? Like you, hey, are these lines on the ruler? They look really um, straight, and the ink looks really clear. Let's put it under a microscope. All of a sudden, you see these variations. You see the texture of ink. You see the way in which it's, you know, ragged and ridged, right? And I feel like Sunday is sort of that personified, where like the, the more you zoom in the less coherent things are, um, even as reality is not lost, it just sort of becomes too big to be explained, if that makes sense. Um, and so, because I feel like the book is so interested in epistemology and in how we know things and in what we know. And that's why for me, like, Sunday isn't God, but of course he bleeds out into this vision of God for Chesterton because there has to be a ground floor of being and for Chesterton, that's God. And so, you know, Sunday is this, like, big personality, and then he's sort of the universe, and then he says he's the peace of God, which is, you know, or and then people call him Pan, you know, sort of this, sort of like yeah. this idea of him being elfin and godlike before he then bleeds out even further, and we hear this very concrete assertion of, like, the bottom of reality is this, you know, Christian idea of God. And so, I don't know, I like, I think yours is more interesting to me because it's, it's first of all, it brings in the fact that Chesterton was like a huge person. And I agree with you, even having seen a picture, I've only seen pictures of him, I kept picturing him as Sunday the whole book. Um, but my reading, my best reading is one that's like epistemological and sort of about the way that material world 
and it's if you actually investigate the material world like as a scientist it still bleeds out into these metaphysical realities you know like every physicist i've read eventually their discussion on time becomes a discussion on like we don't know what this means but here's our best guess and you know it sort of recalls this verse from the Bhagavad gita or this verse from the quran or the bible like ravelli literally quotes those scriptures to help make sense of what he's talking about when it comes to quantum gravitation. So that's my read on it. No, and I I think that's probably closer to what Chesterton was trying to do. This sort of meta-textual analysis is probably not what Chesterton was shooting for, but I just couldn't get away from it because, as you've mentioned, uh, you know, Chesterton was famously large. He was six foot four and 300 pounds, right? Like he was a... Yeah, big guy. Just a huge guy. So uh, I, I couldn't... I, you know, and I think also if Sunday is the world, it makes sense for the world to be very large, but that just felt very, uh, <laughs> very relevant. Um, but I, I think, you're, you know, that it sort of comes away of the world is very complicated, but maybe it's all going to be okay is maybe the argument of the book. And so I, I think that uh, having Sunday be a sort of a representation of reality that resists easy classification, and anytime you look at it too closely, you realize it's more than you thought, I think is probably right. Um, well, and I, and so, um, what's interesting to me as a, as a final like point to bring in physics that no one cares about that I don't understand, but it, it felt so relevant because this book about physics, it talks about, so like, um, but one of the ongoing problems is that there seems to have been less entropy in the past than in the future and the present. And that's really the thing that makes time feel so concrete. It's the one thing that we can't get away from in some sense. We get away from it if you zoom down enough, you see that like, you know, nothing actually rearranges significantly at the level of, you know, the Planck scale or whatever. But it rearranges significantly from our point of view. And so there's a really great way in which Ravelli in this book, and some stuff, like, it's so funny because I read this book and he's so much smarter than I am, but I didn't agree with everything he said because he can't help but become philosophical when talking about, like, the nature of the universe, right? And what, what I like that he did, though, is after he asserts all these really sort of strict materialist arguments that are, you know, again, for me, impossible to debate because I don't know enough, and also it's just nice to hear them because it's fun to read about physics, after he sort of, you know, uh, deconstructs our coherent viewpoint, he says, well, here's the thing. We can't get away from entropy being less in the past, quote unquote, than it is now. But actually, he's like, you could define it as simply that is our special viewpoint. And so there's a way in which actually the universe has proved our specialness because we're the beings who see that as being a coherent less and then a coherent more when it's not, of course, which this is maybe forced a little bit, but that reminds me of the end of The Man Who Was Thursday, where this bigness, this vastness, you talk about a note of comfort at the end, and it's because this bigness and this vastness sort of fade into Gabriel Syme having a nice walk in a small, beautiful suburb of London that is supported by the vastness of Sunday or whatever Sunday represents. You know what I mean? Like, the, the smallness is no less real or enjoyable because the bigness is underneath it is that scan you think or yeah i think that makes a great deal of sense um it might be a good transition to be honest to napoleon and notting hill because like you said um there's a great quote in man it was thursday that talks about you know local patriotism um is you know a good thing basically but that's the point of the book napoleon of notting hill and so i don't know if you wanted to introduce that text or <laughs> if you wanted to move that way 
Um, I think we should so, soon. I, there's, yeah. I just want to. I want to spend a couple seconds. I just want to pick out a couple of like paragraphs, just kind of here and there, just because I think. Yes, it, please. I, one of the things I think that can happen when we talk about a book like this is we can say it's so good, it's so fun. Here are the big ideas, and we end up not actually ever quoting anything from it, which That's I think true. is a shame because Chesterton is such a fun sentence by sentence writer. So I just had, uh, and again, because he's one of those writers that will be described as endlessly quotable, we should give you some quotes, right? Yes. So here's one that I really liked, and it's after. Uh, Syme has realized that the old man professor who is, again, it's, it's a, also, this book is really unsettling. Uh, like, it's it's really, uh, <laughs> hey, hey, is this book weird fiction? Uh, you know, it's not, probably. But, like, it's got something in common with it, right? Because, like, the scene it, where the I professor... I totally thought you were, yeah, I totally thought this, you might go there, because you should, because it has something in common with the weird fiction, I agree. And I've read some early ninth, like early, 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 early twentieth century weird fiction, um, like The King in Yellow. I guess is technically very late nineteenth century. Uh, some of the Alfred Cuban and stuff like that. And this book would fit right in, except I guess for the last, the last paragraph, which is a little bit too uh, last, last, uh, sorry, last section, which is probably too explicit, even as it's pretty vague, because uh, that the analogous stuff in like the Alfred Cuban just goes completely off the rails and doesn't right. make any dang sense. And I think isn't very good, to be honest, but uh, we'll move on. Uh, <laughs> but, like, here's uh, – this is after the professor has been revealed to be just a young man who can sprint and not some sort of, like, dark sorcerer uh, who can teleport. Uh, they're talking, and Syme has a sense of a new comradeship and comfort. Through all this ordeal, his root horror had been isolation, and there are no words to express the abyss between isolation and having one ally. It may be conceded to the mathematicians that four is twice two, but two is not twice one. Two is two thousand times one. <laughs> that is why, in spite of a hundred disadvantages, the world will always return to monogamy. So this is, I think, an important paragraph, both because two is two thousand times one is just one of those very good sort of true but sort of paradoxical things, which is Chesterton's whole bit. And then also the throwaway line about the world always returning to monogamy is also very Chesterton, right? Where, like, I'm going to make a really big claim about the entire world in my spy story. Like, I'm going <laughs> to... <laughs> <laughs> it's true. No, I totally agree. <laughs> and uh, well, I just... I think it can also be why he can be kind of a frustrating author sometimes, too, because, like, he'll make these sort of broad, sort of, like, lowercase c conservative arguments, too, right? Like... He'll give oh, yeah. a whole little speech about law and order or whatever. And, you know, we might agree or disagree with it. But sometimes you're like, I didn't quite realize this is what I was signing up for. But you are because it's Chesterton and everything he does is everything he does. Like, with that connected. line with that line with monogamy, I actually I, which I love that. But actually, when he ends on the point of monogamy, I think I wrote in my text literally, OK, comma, relax. <laughs> yeah, <'Cause> it's, <laughs> it's so good. And like, it's not even about agreeing or disagreeing. It's just that he can't help but bring things to, to such a punchline. You know, like you can tell he's waiting for the punchline to land. And, and he won't end the thought until it lands. And sometimes the punchline is unnecessary or, you know, like you said, maybe a little too polemical or something. Um, I think he's I, – so what I, I have times when, it, when he, I think he's funny just like he's so much more uh, weird than I even – I ever remember him being. Um, so like he has little things like <laughs> he, um, the ordinary detective goes to pothouse to arrest thieves. We, the Syme detectives – Go to artistic tea parties to detect pessimists. You know what I mean? Like that's such a goofy way of orienting and beginning your detective story. Is like, you know, making jokes is how he sets up every single plot of action. But it's still, it's also just funny, right? It's just a funny line. No, absolutely. I had one other sort of quote, which is a, a sort of a more political point, but one that's probably more interesting, uh, and is also, I think, part of a decent transition to. Uh, 
the Napoleon of Notting Hill. So Stime and his, uh, his guys are running away from what they think is like an army of anarchists that are chasing them. And in fact, turns out to be, as we know, one of the other detectives who has got his group of friends that are trying to chase down who they believe to be the anarchists. I forget exactly the specific context, but they're arguing about with, with them, with the other detectives and some friends about this mob that's chasing them, right? Right. And some people are like, there's going to be so many guys here. Like, you don't understand this whole town is going to rise up against us when we show up because they're all anarchists. And Syme says, what are you talking about? Surely not many working men are anarchists. And surely if they were, mere mobs could not beat modern armies and police. And one of their newer friends says, you know, mere mobs. So you talk about mobs and the working classes as if they were the question. You've got that eternal idiotic idea that if anarchy came, it would come from the poor. Why should it? The poor have been rebels, but they have never been anarchists. They have more interest than anyone else in there being some decent government. The poor man really has a stake in the country. The rich man hasn't. He can go away to New Guinea in a yacht. The poor have sometimes objected to being governed badly. The rich have always objected to being governed at all. Aristocrats were always anarchists, as you can see from the Barons' Wars. Um, and that's that's a line that he, he kind of comes back to that idea several times throughout the book. That, like, any time somebody wants to say, oh, it's these, you know, petty criminals or whatever, like, Chesterton seems to say, no, that's not really the point. Like... Yeah, sometimes your your poor people steal things or whatever, but that's not that's not the real sort of right. soul shattering anarchy. It's the rich that are that, and that's uh, you know, it's it's a pretty strong point. It's also why I think Chesterton is politically hard to classify in twenty nineteen. Like oh, like frankly, like yeah. a lot of early twentieth century writers are, if you actually read them, because he's yeah. in some ways very conservative. He has a whole book called Orthodoxy. You know, like my man is super into tradition and that sort of thing, but he's also super skeptical of like capitalism like uh, yes. and and that whole sort of power accretion and it's why which we're going to talk about napoleon and notting hill shortly the book is really odd in 2019 political terms because parts of it seem really sort of right wing and parts of it seem really quite left wing <laughs> yeah so let's yeah that, that's let, let's get to napoleon and notting hill because i actually i found more quotes from man who was thursday but honestly like that's an endless activity <laughs> i could keep yes. just pulling stuff that is <laughs> Well, it's funny objectively, and sometimes it's also just like Joel loved this line, and he can't explain why. Um, but I so let's from in taking your cue that we often talk about you know quotability or the enjoyment of prose or whatever, and so I I think actually I have a passage from Napoleon of Notting Hill that not only is like well written, but I think it's a good starting place for maybe um, how relevant feeling this text is whether it's whether that's its power or not i think it's actually good despite that in some ways um but that maybe it's a fun text to read partly because it does feel really relevant to what's happening now as far as like maybe like you know people talk about tribalism a right a lot right now or nationalism and napoleon of notting hill is a book that is explicitly interested in nationalism and local patriotism and so forth but here's a quote that i feel like we should start with as just maybe proof of its, you know, perspicacity and um, relevancy. Have you not noticed how continually in history democracy becomes despotism? People call it the decay of democracy. It is simply its fulfillment. Why take the trouble to number and register and enfranchise all the innumerable John Robinsons when you can take one John Robinson with the same intellect or lack of intellect as all the rest and have done with it? Which... 
I read this book shortly after the election, uh, political warning, and it struck me like a bolt of thunder <laughs> as far as not just this current president, but this discussion about how people will elect presidents they want to hang out with. That's been an ongoing thing since at least Reagan. You know what I mean? That, that someone is put into office on account of likability or relatability as opposed to qualifications. And this is in the opening pages of a book from 1904. So with that in mind, you're so good at it. Do you want to give us a, a quick recap of the book just so we know where we are, you know, in, in, in terms of context? So yeah, the book is The Napoleon of Notting Hill, which was published in 1904. Uh, it's either his first or one of his earliest novels. Um, it's set in a sort of dystopic uh, London in 1984. Um, I don't think anyone's quite sure about whether or not George Orwell wrote 1984 and said it in 1984 as a deliberate reference to this, or if that's just a funny coincidence. But yeah, there is more than one sort of semi-famous London dreary gray dystopia in 1984. That's uh, that's kind of fun. Uh, but so again, it's a dystopia, but it's not like, a, it's not the Hunger Games. It's not, you know, Big Brother. You're not going to get taken off to room 101. It's just kind of a gray and featureless and drab bureaucratic existence here in London in the Napoleon of Notting Hill. When you say Big Brother, you you mean the TV show, right? We're just talking about yeah, the TV no. show. I just want to be yeah, clear. Yeah, just the TV show. Yeah, okay. <laughs> uh, there, there's no reality television in uh, Chesterton's uh, dystopia, which is in, in one way why I think it's a decent place. That's the, that's the cheesy, easy joke. The real answer is because television didn't exist yet, and it wouldn't have occurred to him. Um, he kind of deliberately doesn't speculate on the technological or sort of alt history stuff that got here because he doesn't care. He's just trying to set a dystopia in a London. that looks very much like the one he's in with a few minor political changes. Um, and I really respect that when an author says, I don't care about all this world building because neither should you. That's not what this is about. I think people get really tangled up in their world building. And uh, that's fine when you have something like Dune, where that's sort of the point of the book. And it's less fun in a book, which I'm not going to pick on anybody in particular here, but it's less fun in the book where that's not the point, and the point is something else. And the point in this is not about trying to create a realistic society. It's about making a series of political experiments and and, uh, and jokes. A lot of good jokes, because it's still Chesterton after all. So the way the society differs from the London of Chesterton's time is that the actual government is done by some number of faceless bureaucrats who are really not described in any level of detail at all. They're off doing stuff throughout this book, and goodness knows what, Right. Um, but the big change is that now England picks, or Great Britain, I assume, picks its king the way other people pick juries, I think is the reference uh, that Joel reminded me of earlier. Uh, it's done by just sort of a lottery. They grab a random citizen off the street and make him the king of England. And at the time this book is set, that honor is bestowed upon a man named, I think it's Oberon. It might be Oberon. It's A-U-B-E-R-O-N. Oberon Quinn, who is a man who is basically just uh, a troll, a petty jokester. <laughs> yeah, sorry, I had not thought of him as a troll until you just said that, because he's someone who has like almost this, this like mental break where he realizes the world is ridiculous and he just becomes committed to being a prankster. But a troll is a pretty good definition of like his pessimism, actually. Sorry, I just that's that's yeah. great. And more in the slightly older trollish, which is trollish behavior, which was still kind of gross and bad, but wasn't necessarily you know trying to get you fired by sending. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Early, yeah earlier troll uh, history. Earlier trolling. <laughs> um, a something awful troll, not a four chan troll. Oh but reevaluating famous figures from literary history as to what website they would shit post on in 2019. <laughs> That's what I'm going to contribute to the discourse. 
All right. Anyway, uh, we're not supposed to swear. Uh, okay, so Operon. Full disclosure: This is the third time I've tried to record this because we've had we've some technical been, difficulties. I know we're both so. pretty punch drunk by this point. Uh, not only have we been talking forever, but we yeah we've we've had we both hung up on each other on accident. It's been a great time. But uh, so Operon Quinn, he's picked he for gets king. Declared, um, yeah, king of England, and he's yeah he's just a guy. <laughs> yeah, he's 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 just a guy with a sort of a weird sense of humor and. Who refuses to take the kingship very seriously, and it's pretty hard to argue why he should take it seriously, because it's clearly a ridiculous figurehead position. Um, he's walking around London, and he gets to Notting Hill one day, and a little boy kind of runs into him with, like, a wooden sword. And Oberon Quinn gives this ridiculous speech about, always defend Notting Hill against its, you know aggressors from the nearby boroughs and here's where i'm going to quickly point out that i've been to london but i don't care about where boroughs are <laughs> that's like so going, yeah, it's like going to new york right. like i when, I when i was living in syracuse new york everyone in syracuse that i knew had been living in the city at some point in new york city and they all they all talk about the neighborhoods and and maybe like the sub neighborhoods with encyclopedic clarity which i never understood and that's exactly what Chesterton's doing with London, right? Like it's the classic, like all these neighborhoods exist, but unless you're from the damn city, you have no idea what they are. Yeah, like I barely understood where the neighborhoods were in Minneapolis, and I lived there for some years, right? right. Like I'm not going to bother memorizing London. I moved, I moved back to Denver, and they've invented new places. There's like, there's like, there's like, <laughs> no, I'm serious. There's like, there's like Rhino and Lohi, and these these things. Like I've, I was born here. I was born just north of Denver. I went to the University of Denver. I came back one Christmas when I was living in Syracuse, and all of a sudden we've invented these new cool names. It's it's like the worst trend of all time because because it's like um it's like an earworm it i can't i say them now you're like oh yeah let's go to rhino man and i just i feel horrible about myself morally and spiritually but they're infectious and i just they shouldn't exist unless they're organic anyway keep going with the synopsis sorry (laughs) (laughs) no it's quite all right uh uh, my point is just if I if I say two boroughs are next to each other and they aren't, don't tell me. I don't care. Yeah, um, don't tweet so. us. <laughs> um, but anyway, he goes on this like massive speech about how this little boy should defend this neighborhood because he's goofing around. And then he gets an idea in his head to bring back sort of heraldic pageantry to London. And so he goes back and he just makes up a bunch of symbols and crests and insists people wear if they're you know if they're going to come before the king and they're the representative of this or that town or they have to have to like erect walls between each you know each each city in london each uh each part it's like notting hill is going to get its own wall and its own warden and so on south kensington and baywater and what yeah he's going to just make up these ridiculous like backstories for how they got their names and what they're about like he goes on this long rant about the knights at the knight's bridge which is all i mean even i know is just nonsense right yeah and then he decrees as the king that this is the way it is and everyone's going to have to ha- carry halberds around. There's a recurring series of riffs about how nobody knows what a halberd is, which I really liked. <laughs> yeah, I did too. Um, if, if you have in your house such a thing as a halberd, go into your garden and practice with it is how he orders that they carry halberds. Um, and the rest of the book is kind of the fallout of this because he thinks it's a joke. He's doing it because he thinks it's funny. Everyone else only does it to put up with him. And then one man, 10 years later, who it's revealed later is the little boy that he gave this speech to in the streets, takes it deathly seriously. Right. Because he is chosen to be the, I think it's the warden, is that the word? The provost. Yes, the provost, sorry. The provost of Notting Hill, which even I know is not a very big and important part of London, right? <laughs> yeah. And 
uh, the you know the capitalist bureaucrats who some of have also become you know provosts of various parts of the city have had this long project to basically build a you know a hyperspace bypass right like to build to build an overpass uh, it's not what it actually is it's a it's a street though like I'm right. making jokes about Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy but it is actually the same plot they're gonna build a street through uh, Pump Street in Notting Hill and uh, so they've done all the appropriate contracts and stuff uh, but. Adam Wayne is his name is not going to have it because they'd be you know basically infringing on his territorial sovereignty and not not his because it's, it's not it's not a personal thing exactly right they would be assaulting like Notting Hill's ancient and you know undamaged border and when they try to force him to it breaks out into warfare uh, the different boroughs of London and the bet the bet so the, I think the two there are like two references that might help so this really would be like like okay I don't know New York City well. But the the joke here is it's like if Park Avenue declared uh, war on Broadway, right? Like that's sort of the equivalent of what's happening in London. And two, like you talked about, the king's joke is to bring back these like medieval traditions that used to exist in different parts of the country, like right York and you know um, Southampton or whatever, right? These different places that used to have sort of like an aristocratic model of like feudal rule, right? The king was in charge, but the each province had their own sort of tradition and history and actually leaders and freedom. And he's like, hey, let's put that onto these neighborhoods because it'll be funny and I'll make people dress up funnily and it'll be a great time. And like you said, this one kid becomes a patriot of Notting Hill and thinks that the, you know, the defense of his place is deadly serious. And I, I love how Chesterton gets there because he talks about like – um that this this boy Adam Wayne has inverted these usual structures of value where like he describes trees being beautiful because they look like lampposts right he describes the stars being pretty because they look like you know lights at night in the city which is a you know it, it's just it's 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 a perfect Chesterton idea right because it's about inversion and kind of jokiness and then it's taking really seriously because of course he sort of is a medievalist at heart um so yeah, so what did you think about this book, Bill? <laughs> I, you know, in some ways I liked it better than The Man Who Was... I think The Man Who Was Thursday is probably the better book, but something about this book, I don't know. Um, I really enjoyed it. I really loved the way that Chesterton deals with Quinn, who is just comes off... You, you think he's just going to be the catalyst to make this happen, and then you're, but actually the book sticks with him a lot. Yeah. As he's kind of in this weird ambivalence of still thinking this is really funny, but also realizing that maybe this got way out of his control. You know, uh, when they all have the meeting where they're all in full pageantry and Wayne is giving all the speeches, at first he thinks that Wayne is goofing around with him. And he's right. like, this is great. We have, I have a partner to joke with. And then he realizes, oh no, this kid has taken this 100% seriously. Uh, I intended to write a burlesque, but instead I wrote an epic or, or it turned into an epic is the yes. line. Uh, you know, I was just trying to goof around and I've actually really maybe done something complicated. And sticks with Oberon throughout the entire book and his ambivalence, even with his ridiculous antics, like as the war gets going on, he throws off the mantle of the crown and becomes a war correspondent, <laughs> like following people around <laughs> know, and yeah. drafting messages back to the newspaper. And none of the newspapers matter anymore. Like they're all sort of, I mean, propaganda arms is too strong because they don't, like no one reads them, right? But there's one newspaper that basically just posts unrelated, irrelevant things and he goes there and acts like he's... Woodward and Bernstein, it's obviously an anachronistic reference, but, like, he's going to be some kind of great newspaper reporter. And, like, it's all kinds of really funny stuff, but there's also a real sense of... I don't know, he... It ends up, again, also being a book where there really aren't bad guys exactly. Like, there aren't, the faceless yeah. bureaucrats are sort of bad. And he doesn't... He clearly likes Adam Wayne more than he likes the 
capitalists who fight against him, but he's not really willing to say that they're evil. Um, and he, he takes time to give us their good qualities, even as he's still sort of making fun of them while he does it. Um, and so it's a really odd book and I liked it immensely. Yeah, no. So it's, it's a crazy book for so many reasons. One of which is actually, you mentioned it's one of his earliest novels and you can tell that because the opening chapter is basically an essay on dystopian fiction, right? So he talks yeah. about how H.G. Wells and others will look to the future and how they will say, well, this one thing is happening. I believe that it will go on forever until it increases, which he says is as ridiculous as seeing a big pig and deciding that pigs in the future will be elephant size, which I think is a great and funny critique of actually a lot of the writing that he's you know discussing. Um, and actually why in some ways this book for me is, is, is way more profound than 1984 because of the stuff he leaves out. Like you said, like he's not trying to be so prescriptive that it's like, well, he got a lot wrong because he's being really careful with what he says can be predicted. Um, but I, I, even with that, this book, which I, I, I'm a man who was Thursday guy, and this is one of my favorite books as well, but I will always love Man Who Was Thursday, I think, in a, in a special way, maybe because I read it when I was so young. But um, this book is almost more quotable. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? So like, and again, I've picked out a, a thing making fun of basically, you know, vegans on accident, but like, it's so good because um, it talk, he's talking about like, um, someone became a veg- not only a vegetarian, but at length declared vegetarianism doomed, shedding, as this guy called it, the green blood of selling animals. But then came the pamphlet from Oregon, <laughs> from Oregon of all places, which is so great, the pamphlet called Why Should Salt Suffer? <laughs> and there was more trouble. <laughs> and it's just like, wow, he even predicted Portland. Do you know what I mean? Like, how, how is that possible? Um so that's so this book is it's so quotable and it feels and what's funny to me is like i like it for reasons that aren't just its relevancy but it is almost impossible to read it and not just feel like he is speaking to certain parts of our age so prophetically and again not necessarily good or bad because i think he has some beliefs that i think are crazy but he captures the the generation of bureaucracy to like a sort of you know tribalism really well and i think that's actually one of the few things i would also fault him for actually is what you said i don't think he needed to show us how bad this world was but i think he did need to prove that like people would want to change as much as they end up changing you know that like that the life was dreary enough before adam wayne comes along that adam wayne's example would actually inspire such change he could have done better on that and yet I thought it was great how he uses Adam Wayne, you know, that basically he says, look, there are political actions and political mindsets that will necessitate extreme reactions and usually extreme reactions where like, it doesn't matter if Wayne wins or not, right? Like he's actually, one of the battle scenes, he's losing and someone cries, he's, he's like, for the glory of Notting Hill and someone cries out, well, what about the glory of Baywater or whatever it is? And he says, we've won. We've won because we've made patriots of their own neighborhoods. And so I think that's a really intelligent political sort of gloss on how certain extreme actions sort of necessitate a rearrangement of, you know, political thinking. Is that is that too maybe highfalutin, you think? Or is that I feel like, I feel like that's what he's doing. I mean, I think he's doing several things, but I think that's definitely one of them because he, he dwells on it several times because Adam Wayne changes the whole world, like the last chapter or the whole London, I mean, because at the end of the last chapter is... Uh, like 10, 20 years after this initial right. fight when Adam Wayne managed to, you know, secure independence basically for Notting Hill. Um, 
he goes there and the whole all of London is different. They're setting up local statues about the battle, which was like a four day skirmish. You know, they're they're the chemists now dress in like warlock robes. The pharmacists <laughs> basically dress in like warlock robes. Yeah. And you know, the guy at the general store, you know, talks to you about the spices brought from, you know, farthest Asia. Um and so he's really changed everything. But at the end, like Notting Hill gets defeated at the very end, right? right? In this sort of final other battle, Adam Wayne doesn't because he basically turns into Conan at the end of the book. Yeah, yeah, that, <laughs> uh, yeah. which is a little odd, uh, but that's fine. Uh, <laughs> um, um, he really does, though. He's backed against a tree and he's like saying, "You know, they're pouring wine for us at the end next to heaven," as he's cleaving men's skulls in half. And like, I read that Conan story and like that 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 bit there at the end of uh, the Phoenix and the Sword. You could pretty much just move it over. Uh, but anyway. Well, but so what's interesting to me, though, is that so you, you mentioned um, in kind of our notes to each other how this is such a great book to talk about after Black Lamb and Grey Falcon, right? Which is yeah. a huge tome on the Balkans and sort of this centuries of sectarian tradition and violence all within a very tight space, which is a, essentially what Chesterton has recreated in London, right? He's like, imagine the Balkanization of London, which is, by the way, still such a great idea. Um and so what's interesting to me is like, uh, well, there's maybe a meta point to make first, which is we started this podcast, or I started it a little bit with like a quote from Rebecca West that kind of dragged Chesterton and even more so the people who wanted to be Chesterton for all the wrong reasons. But actually there's a thing that sees there's a theory that C.S. Lewis has about like when you step away from the past, like, you know, when you look at the 1400s and you look at the debates they had, the debates always reveal how people were a lot alike as opposed to how they were so different. And there's a really weird, it's a really weird through line um, from Rebecca West to this book that is not just the balkanization stuff. It's also like um, the way in which Rebecca West continually refers to these Macedonians, uh, usually Macedonians, but also you know the uh, the Serbians in Homeric terms, right? She explicitly calls them Homeric and talks about like their courage and their you know the beauty of their specificity. That's exactly the argument that Chesterton's making, right? That specificity of tradition has sort of this, if not always heroic outpouring, certainly this sort of like beautiful, enchanted um, way of dressing up everyday life. And I've, I just thought that it was a crazy like, oh, you guys are from the same era, even though you were political enemies, you know? There's some, one of the most interesting ideas in the book is the way the sort of provincialism and the silliness, like, because these are all little tiny boroughs, like these are not... Yeah, the the big army, the big war takes place with like four thousand people total, right? Like that's right. the big army is another four thousand people showing up. But he has a whole bit when he's talking about how Adam Wayne came to love Notting Hill, which is about how, you know, if a child declares that he's the king of this rock, he loves it more if he can't even quite stand on the rock because it's too small, right? There's a the sort of the the power yes. of this small patriotism, which again is the line from the other book, which is what I thought was kind of funny, um, like he's really interested in this notion of, of a sort of a patriotism and a, a sort of a national character, but he deliberately makes it really small, right? There's no London character, right? There's no, right. there's no, we're going to go for war against, for with London against Edinburgh or whatever. And that's, I think one of the interesting tensions here, because he acknowledges that like the whole part of the whole book about, is about, you know, we've forgotten sort of how to have some of this, character in our lives right like the, the the ceremony and the sort of binding together community stuff that we might have been able to do in the medieval era who knows if we actually did right but we'll at least take it as read for now yeah uh but he gets away from some of the big questions about yeah like nationalism when it's 
just you know go minneapolis is one thing but nationalism when it's go the united states against everyone else seems to be a different thing right like there seems to be something scary about how this can become and he seems to kind of ignore it even as the book actually opens with the president of nicaragua like lamenting the imperialism of his latin american country and i was like what <laughs> like, <laughs> well right i know well, this, i know his imagination and his intelligence i mean even when you know even when you think he's being some sort of boorish conservative whatever like i feel like cause I, I always imagine the people who don't like chesterton and i feel like i concede their point you know like not only did he have actual problematic views that i consider problematic but like he is almost like the er type of a type of person they probably don't like you know so i, I get that for me he's he's sort of mostly charming and funny um and also he's dead so like his problematic views you know they're dead <laughs> with him as in the sense of like i don't have to feel bad supporting him anyway side note sorry um but you sent me an article which i thought was interesting that i had no idea that current affairs a very leftist magazine yeah. um that you and i i think both read um off and on now and then it um it, it starts the it's called what's what's the deal with nationalism or something like that and um it starts with Napoleon of Notting Hill and talking about the way in which Chesterton is sort of capturing nationalism through his provincialism. But I, I, I do think, though, that the scale matters, because even though he starts with the tyranny of Nicaragua, I mean, that is the context which um, sets, sets apart his ideas from maybe our current moment, right? Which actually the article you sent me acknowledges that, like, nationalism in 1904 – it had a flavor of what we talked about, again, with Black Lamb and Grey Falcon, where it was people asserting national identity in the face of uh, imperialism, right? So um, the Serbian identity becomes so important to Serbia, not just because they hate the Croats or whatever, but also actually because they've been you know, demolished by the Austrian and the Ottoman empires, right? So like, it's a way to assert yourself in the midst of oppression. And I think that's important for even if he is having some weird pro-nationalism stuff, it is such a different moment of talking about, like, how does nationhood matter in the face of maybe these annexing superpowers, um, which is just, I mean, I think we're a little different these days. Like, the talk now is about globalism, which I feel like is a, is a, more, is a more passive and less violent force usually, minus, you know, all the wars in the Middle East. Anyway, that was just <laughs> so. But so, but I. But so, the, the thing I would tack on at the risk of talking too much is that Chesterton, along with Hitler, uh, with along with Belloc, his buddy, they were pretty uh, much the founders of a system of thought called distributism, which is why he's so hard to locate, you know, in the current model, you know, modern kind of spectrum of political thought because it's not socialism where it thinks that like property is theft or whatever right it's but it it's things that property is so important everyone should have their own means of production do you know what i mean and so i think that so for him scale does matter like it's not just that he's doing an allegory of nationalism which i don't think you're saying but i think you could accuse him of he is saying that the scale of nationalism actually it matters and that it, nationalism looks a lot better when it's a localism and not a nationalism does that track you think no, I think it. I think that's right. I think it would be a, a misreading of him to say that he's all about sort of superpowers nationalistically conquering their neighbors. I think that would be a very clearly incorrect read of it. He's again, he opens with a pretty direct denunciation of the you know future United States conquering the future Nicaragua, <laughs> right. which of course is funny because like not funny. But <clears throat> yeah, five years after this, we did invade Nicaragua. No, basically. yeah, it's bad. Yeah, <laughs> uh, so that was good. Um, but 
I, I you know, I, I do think it's an interesting thing because this, the scale isn't. And again, I think you're right. I think he acknowledges the scale, but I think it would be so easy to read this book and be like, and become sort of xenophobic. And I don't think Chesterton exactly wants you to do that. Although his his racial views are kind yeah. of hard to pin down. <laughs> yeah. And it is worth worth mentioning. I think both of these books are absolutely worth reading, and I don't want to go on a long tear on this because I think it's always the least interesting thing you can do with an early 20th century writer. But, like, he does, you know, women are fickle and weird in Chesterton, and, uh, you know, you got to be a little bit careful about those dark Persians. Uh, yeah, you know, totally. They're, they're, yeah. Always, they're always, at the very least, sort of exotic and strange-looking, right. uh, if not actually evil. And it's not a major part of the books, but, you know, that is there. You need to acknowledge that uh, that's there. Uh, but anyway, I, I still don't think if you read this and you come out like with a violent xenophobic endorsement of Breitbart, I think you didn't read the book very well. Agreed. Uh, but it is it is still, it's where's at what point does this quit being? Does this small patriotism turn into something really ugly? Is hard to say. And again, he, he acknowledges that like a lot of people die in this book, and he doesn't dwell on it, and they all kind of die nobly on the field of battle. But like a lot of people do die in this book, <laughs> so I don't think he's not aware that it causes violence. I just think he maybe argues that. Not that literally we should have... The, I don't think he actually thinks we should have the boroughs of London go to war. But that, like, he acknowledges that they can it can cause tension with your neighbors, but that maybe it's still a better way to live. Well, uh, I, or at the very I, least, I think, we should acknowledge what we lost. I mean, this is the way in which he's, like, conservative in a very long-standing tradition of conservatism, which is, like, there are ideas worth dying for, right? That, like, it'd be better to have a short meaningful life than a long bad life and i you know and that's maybe a little too reductive because he, he has very specific ideas about what's worth dying for and sometimes those ideas seem to just be like well like like in this book well would the landscape like <laughs> would the city be prettier <laughs> oh we should kill people <laughs> you know what i mean like should, we should because in some ways this is like medieval gentrification taken to the level of violence right like um like it's gentrific gentrifying london toward medievalism on the back of just actual like uh, French Revolution type, you know, uh, barricades and so forth. Um, but there's a really interesting reading of this book, I think, wherein the last chapter, like, so, okay, so endings in books or stories, endings create meaning, right? Like how something in and sort of gives you a gloss on what came before, you know, for better and worse. Um, maybe that shouldn't be the case, but it seems to be an inevitable feature of narrative. Uh, you know, meaning making. And so for this book, um, it ends after the last great battle where the balkanization or the localizationizing of <laughs> London has happened. Notting Hill is Notting Hill, the city. So is South Kensington, so forth. And then Notting Hill's defeated, like we talked about. And everyone around Oberon or Oberon and King Quinn are also basically dead or, you know, indisposed or whatever. And they have this back and forth, this really kind of allegorical back and forth about, you know, how to basically find value as a human, maybe, you know, whereas Oberon says, I'm, I was laughing at what you considered honorable. And it was a joke. I, I caused all of this destruction and death for the sake of a joke. And Oberon keeps resisting it. But he actually, he does hear that and it gives him pause before he asserts, well, maybe you and I are two sides of the same brain, right? That we're two sides of what makes life good and we should wander the earth together. And what's interesting to me is that he doesn't say let's reconquer anything. He doesn't say let's go make more free cities. Let's go make more local patriots. He says let's wander the earth together with sort of an integrated outlook that we didn't have before. Because there's a lot of valorization of Wayne 
throughout the whole thing, right? It's possible I've been calling Oberon Wayne the whole time, by the way. Sorry. You have for the last couple seconds, and I was going to bring it up at the end. Yeah, yeah, okay. It's, so, it's yeah, right. so when I was, yeah, so uh, Wayne and Quinn, that's who I'm talking about. But so there's a weird valorization of Wayne that would maybe give a very, like, easy reading of the book, right? As just like, hey, local patriotism, even at the cost of bloodshed, is good. But of course, the book doesn't end with that. The book ends with his sort of worshipful love, Adam Wayne's worshipful love, joining forces with, you know, the mollifying humor of Oberon Quinn and going to do something new, right? Like, that's that, if you're going to put an allegorical meaning on it, like, it's actually not just that Adam Wayne has the answer, it's that there's some kind of integration which didn't exist for the entirety of the book. No, and I think that's right. So, like I said, I think if you read this as a straight endorsement of, like, putting up walls, you'd be misreading it. But it is still an odd book accordingly. But it is, it is, it does, though. I mean, you have all this sort of goofy joking around and sort of adventure sword fighting, and then it ends with this conversation with the two of them. They're not even initially, it's really odd. I don't quite know what to make of this choice, because it doesn't open with, like, and then Oberon wandered up to Wayne and they had a conversation. It's their two voices coming out of the darkness. I know. You know, and, and he doesn't even explicitly say that it's them until towards the end. I mean, he drops hints, but he doesn't. It's not towards the very end that he actually says this is for sure them. It really is clearly, I think, intended to be a, you know, philosophical conversation. The, the, thru- the, the thrust of the book is these two voices, and oh yeah, they're tied to the characters, but like, let's focus on them first as, you know, right. Chesterton's argument. Um, it's such an odd book. And what a, you know, I don't know, you just, can you, can you write anything like this anymore? Like, I'm not sure you can. I'm not sure. <laughs> Man, I don't know. That's, yeah, that's, I mean, I honestly, like, you know, what's funny is, um, I'm, you know, he has such a long lasting influence, Chesterton. Um, but I actually, there, there, there's a weird American strain of writing that felt connected to me, which you could connect it to Vonnegut a little bit, to be honest, like Cat's Cradle, which sort of is a not dystopic dystopian novel. It, it, it has some of this zaniness, you know, some of this like zooming out to the level of metaphor while never quite losing character. And that's, that's a little true. Like I, I think people connect George Saunders to Vonnegut a little too much because they're both funny and have like zany semi sci-fi uh, scenarios. But actually, Lincoln and the Bardo has some of this insanity, where it's you know it's <laughs> all these ghosts, including Lincoln's son, in the graveyard experiencing some kind of purgatory and having these like insane recreations of Civil War battles and also just like their own lives. It, that it's 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 wackier than this book but it, it actually feels similar as far as it's speaking at a level of allegory that's never quite allegorical you know um but you're right as far as like could you actually do something that that's this sort of straightforwardly i don't know essayist it doesn't feel like you can anymore if or it feels it feels like if it is happening it's all happening in the realist mode you know um or in like the very very hard science fiction mode, which is not nearly as well-written, usually, in my experience, at least. I guess there's a lot of bloggers who do sort of thought experiment thing. Like, I think so, like, some of the Slate Star Codex stuff, I guess, is kind of... It's obviously not nearly as good, but that's not fair. But uh, I guess some of that stuff, where, like, I'm going to sort of do a thought experiment with a... I guess I've read some stuff there that's sort of like that. But it's still... It's such a... Both these books are so... I don't know. The early ni- early twentieth century is such a just a wild west for fiction, man. People did all kinds of weird stuff. Well, it's actually sometimes <laughs> sometimes that's the depressing thing about wanting to be a writer, which I I actually don't care anymore. I feel like I'm I'm so invested in this you know whatever it is this life choice <laughs> that it doesn't matter 
you know, what, what came before me in some ways as far as what I should do or not do. And yet, so you talk about the, you know, early 20, early 20th century, which you're right. That's like, you know, the heyday of modernism, you know, comes in the twenties and so forth. And actually, of course, James Joyce wrote Ulysses explicitly to exhaust the possibilities of the novel. That novel is so, is such a head trip because it's trying to make style the hero of the text explicitly, you know, like it has plot and so forth, but that's all subsumed under this avalanche of style. And every section, and sometimes within every section, he's trying to do different stuff. So like there's a section where he does this sort of maudlin Victorian interiority, which is like very clear and very easy to read and very funny. And other times, you know, he one of the most famous sections is he does an out-and-out play that sort of has the stage directions take over the text. And it's sort of frustrating to read it, as well as inspiring, because you realize that like people get to the get to the get to the advanced level of an idea so much faster than we want to give them credit for um i'll tack on one more example which is that the word robot means like servant right or slave um and it was first used in a play way back in the way back machine again i think early early 20th century and it um in the first damn instance of robot the play is about these human looking robots who are putting into question what's robot and what's man, which is just ex machina. <laughs> but it's the yeah. first time robots have been done on the stage. So it's like the first time we thought of robots, we thought of what people did in 2015. Do you know what I mean? Like there's a way in which people get to the end of an art form so much quicker than we think they do. Um, and, I, and, I, and again, I don't, I don't think it's actually depressing because... Um, art is partly interesting because it's tied to personality, I think, which is not a popular thing to say. And not that people are interesting, but that people are unique, you know, and so you get unique stuff because you have unique personalities, I think. But yeah, I think so much weird stuff was happening. And uh, really, I don't know, Chesterton was annoying because he was doing so much else besides writing good novels. <laughs> like, this was just like, he yeah, just... he just one thing he did. Yeah, he just like yeah. spit these out, you know what I mean? Like... What a what a what an incredible, stupid brain. So I've got a couple just individual passages I want to just highlight, sort of just as here's some interesting stuff. If uh, if you're all right with that, yeah, let's do it. Um, uh, I have to mention this just because this is where Neverwhere comes from. It's uh, the king after he's decided to do this is he's talking about London and all the different parts in it, and he has this uh, this little speech. I cannot think, he said, why people should think the names of places in the country more poetical than those in London. Shallow romanticists go away in trains and stop in places called Hug Me in the Hole or Bumps on the Puddle, <laughs> and all the time they could, if they liked, go and live at a place with the dim, divine name of St. John's Wood. I have never been to St. John's Wood. I dare not. I should be afraid of the innumerable night of fir trees, afraid to come upon a blood-red cup and the beating of the wings of the eagle but all these things can be imagined by remaining reverently in the Harrow train. So that's that's the uh, quote at the beginning of Neverwhere, Neil Gaiman's book about the sort of dark secret London that's underneath. Uh, and that's why I really do think that to some extent, and I think it's pretty clearly that's what he's doing, like Neverwhere is just this, is just Adam Wayne taking it seriously again, right? Yeah. It's just only a adding a weird fantastical element to everything because you're right, that's what that actually is in the context is Oberon Quinn just screwing around. But if you take that one line out of context, which is, again, literally what Gaiman does for the opening quote from 
Neverwhere, it imagines a whole magical place in London. And I think that's just kind of fun to find connections between things. Uh, well, so and also, it's it's hard to uh, <laughs> it's 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 hard to doubt the importance of a premise after reading Chesterton because, like I, I like I'm with you. Like I I read Napoleon of Notting Hill, and in some ways, in some ways, it stuck in my mind, and with like a specificity that the man who was Thursday just couldn't because of how weird that book ends. Um, and yet like, I think it's underwritten in some parts. Like I think the beginning of Napoleon of Notting Hill has some real pacing issues. Like we, we both, we yeah. both spend too much time with Oberon's weird prankiness. And also like, I can't actually get a, a read on Oberon until we're later in the book. You know, I can't tell how I'm supposed to think of him in some ways until he's like war cons- correspondent and not, not quite that late, but, um, but so it's both spending too much time on him and also yet it's under, de- it's underdeveloped, but the premise is just so strong that as soon as it really locks in, it just, it sort of has you, you know what I mean? Like, like the idea itself sort of carries any weakness, you know, along with it, if that makes sense. No, that makes sense. Um, I agree that the beginning of this book is much less, like, the book takes a minute to get going. Now, it's still only a 140-page book, so by a minute, so I mean, short, like, 20 yeah. <laughs> pages. But definitely, uh, whereas Man Who Was Thursday rolls riding out of the gate, uh, and, and this definitely takes a while to get going, so I, I also agree with that. I think I, I think The Man Who Was Thursday is probably the better book. I just, I think this one has, it's been a week, so, you know, who knows, but so <laughs> far has stuck with me a little bit more. I was, I was just going to say, I mean, I, Man Who Was Thursday, I think, is such, is such a rollicking, fun read that also is philosophical, and, like, what more could you ask for? But I agree with you, like, this is also a fun read, but the, the way that he combines medievalism with localism, with like kind of these secret distributist ideas, which we actually haven't talked about, which we, uh, I will, I'll let you do your quote first, but I just, um, I, there's something that, that's what what I mean with premise. There's something that is unique about this premise, which like the man who was Thursday is unique, but I, I pointed out like Joseph Conrad had a book, I think a year before the man who was Thursday about, anarchist plots and double agents you know like there's a way in which it's just not quite as singular maybe so yeah what else did you want to read though sorry so i just this is this is one of those paragraphs which is part of why chesterton can be so sort of infuriating and hard to nail down because this is uh this is great it's early on so we didn't talk about it much because it's just kind of a referent but early on quinn and some of his buddies who later end up being provosts of various parts of the city and one of them dies heroically um meet the deposed president of nicaragua and they meet him on the street and he's uh looking for a yellow scrap of cloth and a red scrap of cloth so he can create the flag of nicaragua and everyone's like what the heck are you doing right well they have a conversation about it which boils down with the the you know the sort of bureaucratic cosmopolitans saying something like look we're you know we don't really care about Nicaragua and such because what we're interested in is like building these great big civilizations where everybody you know, includes the talents of all absorbed peoples. And the president says, you know, okay, you'll forgive me. I'm just going to cut through some things here. You know, how do you, how do you catch a wild horse, sir? And the guy says, I don't catch a wild horse. Precisely said the other, that's the president. And there ends your absorption of the talents. That is what I complain of your cosmopolitanism. When you say you want all peoples to unite, you really mean that you want all peoples to unite to learn the tricks of your people. If the Bedouin Arab does not know how to read, some English missionary or schoolmaster must be sent to teach him to read. But no one ever says, this schoolmaster does not know how to ride on a camel, let us pay a Bedouin to teach him. You say your civilization will include all talents. Will it? Do you really mean to say that at the moment when the Esquimaux has learnt to vote for a county council, you will have learnt to spear a walrus? I recur to the example I gave. 
In Nicaragua, we had a way of catching wild horses by lassoing the forefeet, which was supposed to be the best in South America. If you are going to include all the talents, go and do it. If not, permit me to say what I have always said, that something went from the world when Nicaragua was civilized. And like... That's a pretty sharp paragraph. <laughs> <laughs> well, and it's, yeah, and well, and like you said, what's so fun about Chesterton is that he does sort of turn these essayistic points into in, into conflict. You know what I mean? Like, like and that, that, that's a classic, you know, novel of ideas, two people debating something, and the energy of the debate lets you read the ideas in a way you might not have before. But he's having so much fun with language and also, like, he just doesn't stay still very long, right? So he has this great point that you just read that comes on the heels or just before the point that I read earlier about democracy devolving into despotism, right? And that, like, those ideas he comes back to, but he sort of just sprints onward, right? Like, he, he's just sort of dropping these nuggets in, and they're important, but they're not really dragged out in the way that they could be in a different novel, like... um Honestly, I think uh, a buddy of mine and I were talking recently about novels and research and how it seems like we're at a point when, like, a well-researched, half-well-written novel will get a rave just because, like, it's clearly well-researched, you know? But that's just because people love Don DeLillo in America right now. But Don DeLillo is not the only way to do ideas. You can do ideas at the level of wit and not just the level of research. And that's why I think I enjoy Chesterton so much because he offers a different model of philosophizing, one that's to me a lot, to, a lot of times, you know, more enjoyable. Which is not to like Thunderlilo is one of my favorite authors. He's very funny. His best stuff is funny, but when he goes bad, it's often for going on too long, in my opinion. So yeah, so I, I actually, it's you know, it's um, I had one more quote that I wanted to read as well, actually, even though it's not as good as the one you just read. But when I read it, I read it after um. My daughter was born, and it just knocked me on my butt a little bit, um, which is so fun about literature. Like, so often it's when you read something, you know, or the context um, that just gives it a permanence that you can't get rid of later in life. Um, But he has this great quote where he says, You don't know what a thing happening means. You sit in your office expecting customers, and customers come. You walk in the street expecting friends, and friends meet you. You want to drink and get it. When something happens... It happens first, and you see it afterwards. And I thought that was just like that's the perfect that's a perfect emotional uh, description of what it feels like to go through something big, whether it's a baby or something else. You know, like it happens to you, and then only afterwards do you understand that anything happened at all. Um, which is yeah, which is Chesterton being great on a number of levels. So uh, I don't think I, I don't have a ton else, man. Do you have more stuff you want to go through? No, that's. I think that's pretty much everything. These books are both, they're each less than 150 pages. um, And they're pretty, they're not dense in the sense that like Black Lamb and Gray Falcon is dense, where you have to like really kind of think about everything. They're dense, but they're dense in the sense that there's just a lot of stuff packed in here, right? It's like an overstuffed suitcase. Like, um, and I don't know. I'm very glad I read them. Chesterton, again, he's always been one of those writers I've intended to get around to reading. And now I have read these two. Uh, I think these are probably the two novels qua novels right that are the big things like he wrote all the a lot of other stuff like the father brown mysteries and such but I yeah think... I, so I, I think for a long time actually father brown is still his his most read fiction is my guess and so the stuff that the that the average person would know him for best and i actually i recommend father brown even just like penguin has like the essential father brown it's like a, a shorter collection of of the best stories and i i read that in high school and i i still read it today i, I like it still 
The other one that I can't remember where it's from, but it's it actually is blurbed on the back of uh, Napoleon of Nutting Hill. Anthony Burgess, or uh, Burgess, I don't know how to say his name, um, big deal author, but he actually, he identified, the third book that he identified was The Flying In as being one of Chesterton's best novels. And I, I actually own that, but I haven't read it. Um, and I'll read most of his stuff at some point, but actually, we talked about this on the last podcast, He's one of those writers where, like, I don't really mind parceling him out, you know? Like, it's kind of nice that there's there's other books out there that I haven't read of his that, like, they might disappoint, but if they don't, like, what a great thing to have in your 40s, you know? A good book you never read by Chesterton. It just sounds really nice yeah. if I live that long. You never know. Um, <laughs> one can only hope. Yeah. But, yeah. So, yeah. So, I, but, yeah. So, I definitely think your point was basically that we we highly recommend these books. They're fun, fast, uh, but intelligent reads. Um and Chesterton, yeah, he's he lives up to the to the to the to the hype. I think. No, oh, I would agree. So, should we talk about what we're doing next? Yeah, yeah. Why don't you uh, let the people know? Sounds good. So we've picked out our our next big read, and we're gonna do an entire trilogy for the first time. So that's gonna have two sort of changes to our usual formula. But we're doing is N.K. Jemison's Broken Earth trilogy, which is a, a science fiction or fantasy. I guess that's kind of both. I haven't read it yet, uh, <laughs> a trilogy that uh, has been really doing the numbers and being a really, uh, really big deal uh, in popular consciousness and in the field for a few years. She won the Hugo for each book in the trilogy, which is, I think, the first time that has ever happened where a trilogy has won a Hugo for each book. Uh, she's also, of course, the uh, first African-American woman to win a Hugo for best novel. Um African-American women have won some of the shorter awards before, but the first book in this series was the first one to win the award for best novel. Right. So she's a, she's a big deal in the scene right now. I've read some of her previous stuff and I'm excited to see where this is. I, I wasn't madly in love with some of the stuff I read before, but it was definitely interesting and I could really see how that writer could uh, later come on to write something just dynamite. So I'm really excited to read it. So it's three books. Um, each book is not quite 500 words. So we're just going to do all three over the course of three months, but we're going to do one podcast episode for each book. So in March, we're going to do the fifth season, then we're going to do the Obelisk Gate, and then the Stone Sky after that. And if I didn't say the specific months, it's because I suddenly got really self-conscious about being able to say the months in order. Uh, I don't know why. <laughs> March, April, May. There we go. March, fifth season, April, the Obelisk Gate, and May for the Stone Sky. To bring Unless it, that's wrong, in which case, don't at me. <laughs> to, to bring it full circle. This is why I wanted to talk about how weird podcasting is. Because there are times when like I slip into just like responding to you, and it's probably when I say... Either the best or the worst thing. It's, it's either one. But for so much of the podcast, like there's just a little awareness that sort of haunts everything I say. <laughs> and it's, it's not a bad thing. It's just, especially as someone who mostly wants to do my thinking in writing form, it can be hard sometimes because I, I can hear myself not saying it the way I want to say it, you know? And, and I know that it's just like, I just have to give that up because that's a point of pride and vanity as opposed to, anything that matters at all in the world. And yet it's really hard to let go of that because if I was to write an essay on, you know, um, these two books, I think I would have said some of the same stuff, but it would of course been edited, which is how I prefer to be seen in the world. <laughs> but anyway, sorry. Yeah. We're doing three books, March, April, May, which does sound right to me as well. <laughs> I think that's right. <laughs> we'll see, you know, we'll um, Google it. We're very excited to do them though. This is our first, uh, our first trilogy we've done, and it'll also be the most uh, recent books we've done. I guess In Defense of Flogging was 2011, 
but this will definitely be the most recent big read we've done. Yeah. Uh, so that'll be kind of fun. It's also the one that's it's very much still in the public content. I mean, the Stone Sky only came out two years ago. I yeah, think, no, so no, it's very I'm much excited. Still in the, N.K. Jemison is, uh, it's not fair to call her up and coming because she just won three Hugos, I but know. she is still very much still going, if you know what I mean. Like, she's she's very much a, a contemporary author. Yeah. So that's really exciting. Um, yeah, and we're going to do another uh, big one in June. So we're just going to, there'll be four podcasts, you know, March, May, again, I'm really nervous about my month now. March, April, May, June. Goodness. This is this is a new thing. I've never been nervous about months before. This is a, this is a fun character. Well, you know, adulthood is just, adulthood is just, yeah, uh, the accretion of anxieties. That's all it is. <laughs> So I'm playing a lot of Darkest Dungeon right now. Have you played that one, Joel? I haven't, no. Okay, well, it's it's a brilliant, brilliant game. Uh, the details don't matter, but you, you have your little guys that you, and they develop quirks as you play them because the whole game is about managing, in addition to your the physical health of your guys, it's their psychological health as you go through a Lovecraftian, you know, nightmare dungeon. Uh, <laughs> and you develop these quirks, and some of them are like things like, you know, you, you get scared if, you're too, if it gets too dark, and so you're less accurate. And some of them are just like you're not allowed to go to the brothel anymore and we're not going to talk about it. <laughs> <laughs> and so I feel like I just got a quirk of can't remember dates now. So that's yeah, it's going to happen for the, years. To go to the sanitarium <laughs> later. Uh, but anyway, we haven't decided what we're doing in June yet, uh, but we'll let you know in plenty of time to read it. It'll probably not be a trilogy. I don't know. It might be anything. It could be, could be anything. It could be anything. Uh, we'll let you know. So as always, uh, you know, we haven't decided what else we're doing this year. So if you have any great ideas, go ahead and, and write us on Twitter or... Uh, I guess pretty much Twitter. Pretty the way much to do Twitter, that. yeah. You can either message me directly or the Big Read Cast account, which I do. I do check. And uh, yeah, do you have anything else, Joel? No, man. That was that was great. Thanks for you suggested these books, and I. I mean, I know I've told you about Chesterton in the past. Not that you didn't know about them already, but they're two of my favorite, and uh, we recommend every book we read on this podcast. But truthfully, like you, you couldn't ask for a better crosscut of fun, but also like engaging text to spend your you know free time with. Yeah, absolutely. These are these are both very worth reading, so I, I recommend them wholeheartedly. All right, man. Well, thanks for talking. I guess we'll see you next time. Yeah, man. Talk to you later. All right. Bye. Bye. Thanks again to Lily Jarvis and Keenan LeBlanc for letting us use their song Water Song for this podcast. You can find more of their music on SoundCloud under their names if you'd like to hear more. As always, please feel free to subscribe to us on iTunes, uh, Google Podcasts. We should be on most of the major podcasting services at this point. And uh, yeah, we'll see you next time.